Please join me this morning in our prayer of illumination. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that in understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow, in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. The first reading today is from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. It can be found in, on page 47 in your pew Bible. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him. So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 uh, through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if, in, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of the slave released him and forgave him the debt that he owed. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. And then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. And I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. And then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Our reading today brings the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew to a close. Chapter 18 is full of practical advice and how to live together in a faith community. Now, last week in verses 15 through 20, we heard Jesus' teaching on how to deal with conflict. And today we learn the next step, what to do once we admit that that conflict actually exists and that we're not just burying our heads in the sand and trying to pretend it's not there. So here is a quick review of Matthew 18, 15 through 20 from last week. In that lesson, Jesus plainly and without parables lays out a three-step process for, addre- for addressing sin and conflict. He spells out how we are to behave as Christians and as Christians in a faith community when conflict arises. First, we must go directly to the person we are in conflict with and speak to them privately. This should happen before we discuss the issue with others and before we harbor it so long that it slowly poisons us against the possibility of reconciliation or forgiveness. We should go to the person directly. Now, if this doesn't work, step two of Jesus' plan for reconciliation and forgiveness is to involve others. But again, Jesus is not saying, go gossip about this person and everyone get their story straight so we can knock this person off their pedestal and put them in their place. No, the proper role of involving others is to provide perspective and maybe some insight into a bigger issue. And if all this doesn't work, then step three is, step three, Christ gives us and calls us to involve the church. According to Jesus, the church should be about reducing conflict through direct discussion, accountability, and transparency. So last week's lesson of confronting sin and conflict leads us to this week's lessons on what we should do once we address it. Now the opening of our reading today this morning was my personal favorite disciple, Simon Peter. And he gives us his profound question, how big? should our forgiveness be? Now, Peter has always been my patron saint. I, like him, was born without a filter between my brain and my mouth. Every job review that I think I ever had in my business career and in even a few of the churches I've worked in have shared a common phrase somewhere in that review. Bart is candid. Now, that's a really polite way to say he has no filter. So please forgive me for my candidness. Simon Peter has no filter either. And if you think about it, he is very candid. 
He wants an answer, and he wants it now. He has just listened to Jesus telling him how Christians should deal with conflict, and Peter wants a number, a measurement. How high, how wide should our forgiveness be? This seems like a good time to find out where to maybe draw that line in the sand as to exactly how forgiving we should be. And we can also give Peter some credit. He's learned from his previous mistakes in talking to Jesus. He knows that Jesus will set a number that is high, probably ridiculously high. So Peter decides to go even higher. Not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times. What Peter is grasping for is when is enough enough. And Jesus' response is simply, you can't count that high. The problem with Peter's line in the sand thinking is that he is really not practicing grace or forgiveness at all. And when we do this, when we're just extending our patience a little bit, and we're still keeping count of all the wrongs, well, that actually means unforgiveness. For the past is never really washed away, is it? It's just set on the back burner to simmer a little while longer. When we choose to forgive, we have to be ready to intentionally stop rehearsing and rehashing all those wrongs all over and over again. It's that recording in our brain that just plays nonstop over and over again of all the wrongs we have received. A lot of times we will play some lip service to forgiveness But whenever anything else happens in that relationship, the old wounds open up and we start all over again. I think the lesson here is about the foundational life of a church, the practices necessary to build up a community of faith. And at the heart of those practices is forgiveness, not as an isolated act, but as an ongoing activity among the members of the community. Just as Jesus' parable is about this small, intimate community, a king and his household, that context and the context that we're in is a community as Christians gathered together. There can be no limit on forgiveness because it is a never-ending practice that is essential to our faith life and our communal life, a life of the church. Just as worship Faith formation, mission, and fellowship are an important part of a church. So must forgiveness be a cornerstone of who we are as a faith community. Now, obviously, we cannot ignore the deep pain of those who've been sinned against, and we cannot minimize the difficulties of forgiveness. A person who has suffered from abuse should not hear from this text that forgiveness should sound easy or worse, see it as an invitation to condone abusive behavior or abusive relationships. That is not the purpose of this text, and the preceding verses, I believe, guard against that interpretation. The forgiveness spoken of by Jesus in this passage is set within the communal process, a process that includes naming the sin, the repentance of the sinner, and where necessary, the community's response to both parties. For the community to create a safe place for the difficult discussions 
that will eventually come. It is challenging, potentially a potentially public process that does not minimize the sin, and it provides resources to support and empower the one who has been sinned against. So only within this process does Jesus call us to forgive other church members countless times. The forgiveness Jesus calls for is inseparable from truth-telling and accountability. Now that's the theological part of it. But how might we communally live that faithfulness, that forgiveness in our life together as a church? A few weeks ago, I was at that modern crossroad marketplace of the world called Harris Teeter. So I was picking up a few things and I spotted across the aisle a friend from the community who had recently lost his spouse after a sudden and brief illness. So after some fond greetings with each other, I asked him how he was doing. Um, His grief was very raw, it was still very evident, uh, bubbling up to the surface quite easily. He told me how his grief still rolled him, how simple things like going to the grocery store reminded him of his loss, how the other day he had received the monthly cell phone bill and it reminded him that he had to disconnect his deceived wife's cell phone. And there was still the question about her car. It still sat in the garage unused. All the things the grieving have to deal with. But then he brightened up a bit and he said how much the support of his family and his friends and his church family had meant to him. And he had certainly felt the prayers of others surrounding him. Feeling connected to his church helped him get through each day, he said. So then I interjected a thought that I wrestle with all the time. How do people who don't have that spiritual support of a loving faith community, how do they handle the deep loss like he was experiencing. And he responded rather quickly that he had been pondering that same question himself. And his conclusion was so profound, out of the depths of his own grief and loss, and standing there in the, between the milk and the cheese section of Harris Teeter, he shared his heart with me. He said that people without faith, without a faith community to express that faith in, their relationship, in a sense, was less connectional. That the spiritual bond that we have with God that we can share with a spouse or a loved one and then a whole community of faith only strengthens and deepens our relationship with each other and with the Creator and with creation itself. People who don't have this, although they suffer loss and grief, it's not the deep wounded loss we feel as believers who have lost our spiritual soulmate. But, he said, it's a double-edged sword. Our Father makes us love more deeply, so we grieve more intently. Yet God provides a faith and a faith community to surround us, to help us get through and in our grief. It helps pick us back up off our feet when we've been knocked down. And we see the love of Christ surrounding us. I'll tell you, I'm forever grateful for my friend's wisdom. I think he was really on to something. 
For me, that is why Jesus tells us this parable. In our faith community, the very foundation of who we are needs to be based in forgiveness. And yes, forgiveness that is 77 times. We all have groups and contexts that we function in, neighborhood groups, dinner groups, bridge groups, service organizations, our foursome at the golf course. Those are all good, important parts of life. But this group, this group that calls itself Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, we are different. We must behave differently. We must love differently. And we have to forgive differently. Because if we do not, Jesus understands the very foundation of who we are as a community of faith will be destroyed. Church life is different. It should be a place where we can be honest and open with one another, direct and yet affirming. A place set apart to visibly express sacrificial love and grace that we see in Jesus. We often forget that Jesus' wonderful declaration where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you, comes in the middle of a hard discussion about church life and about forgiveness. Forgiveness that is a zillion times over. According to Jesus, the church should be the one place where love and forgiveness are not just empty words, but are visibly present. So my friends, let us begin. Let us begin today forgiving. Forgiving from the bottom of our hearts. Forgiving 77 times. And showing each other how precious we are to one another. Not once, not twice, not three times, not seven times, but beyond any number that we can count. To forgive as God forgives us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.